This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus from the four Gospels. Ben, last week we took a look at an unforgettable boat ride in which Jesus calmed a raging storm just by talking to it, and then cast a multitude of demons out of a crazy guy who lived in a cemetery. I don't know how you can top that, but today we're going to look at more of Jesus' healing ministry, and then even see some reactions to him as he goes home to where he was raised. We're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 9 today. We'll reference some things from Mark and Luke as well, but those listening, if you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 9, you can you can jump in and follow along with the story. We'll, we'll kind of move through several of these stories. There's, there's several of them in Mark, Matthew chapter 9, that is, where Jesus does healing. And we won't have time to dwell deeply on all of them. I think most interested. I'm most interested today in some of the statements that Jesus made along the way, and maybe some of those statements or reactions from others along the way in this, this grand day of healing that it looks like that he had. Let's start in Matthew chapter 9, and verse 18 to 34, we see that there's a woman who had come to Jesus. She had been bleeding for 12 years. That's a, that's a long time to suffer with something, isn't it? And, and she, it says in, in Mark's version that she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. <laughs> that's not a real nice thing to say about your physician. But she'd suffered under them and spent all she had, every dime, on these doctors. But instead of getting better, she grew worse. I imagine that she was pretty desperate. I imagine that she really wanted something to happen. So Jesus is walking with a crowd of people around him, like we've seen. Almost always there's a large crowd. And she reaches out and touches him. And over in Luke 8, 46, Jesus said, someone touched me. Actually, the verse before, he asked the question, who touched me? Here's one of those interesting questions because it's a mob, it's a crowd, people are reaching out, they're touching him, like, hey, give me your autograph. They probably had you know, the, the Jesus baseball card and wanted him to sign it or something like that. And he, and he says this ridiculous thing, who touched me? Uh, why do you think he asked that question and for whose benefit did he ask that question? Who touched me? For the woman's benefit, he's calling her uh, really into relationship. Uh, with him. I, I believe that Jesus knew exactly who uh, touched him, but he is offering her an opportunity, uh, really, whether, you know, to either A, I guess, conceal her anonymity or B, step into a relationship with him. And so when I, when I read these words, I oftentimes think about, uh, and again, completely different context, but after, the, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they go, hide and God calls out to them in the garden, where are you? He clearly knows where they're at, but he's in, again, inviting them into relationship as they are in hiding ultimately and attempting to hide from him. He's calling them back into relationship. And so I see Jesus here 
really extending his embrace uh, to the woman, calling her out of the crowd, calling her to come and, and be with him. Uh, and it, again, and not to be redundant, but in relationship. It's, a, it's an interesting thing that Jesus does when he interacts with people a lot of times. Like we've already talked about, what do you want me to do for you? Right. Who touched me? And a little bit later, we're going to see down in Matthew 9, 28. Well, let's just jump there real quick and tie these together. When Jesus restores the sight of two blind men, and he asks them the question, do you believe that I am able to do this? Well, Jesus doesn't, I, I guess, need permission in order to be able to heal somebody, but he continually is engaging them, isn't asking questions. Do you believe that I can do this? Who touched me? All these kinds of questions that he, he poses at people. What do you want me to do for you? Is that really all about relationship? I mean, is that, is that what he's doing here? Is he, is he invoking faith out of them? Is, what's, what seems to be happening in these stories when he's healing people, but has a little bit of a interaction first? Yeah, I mean, I, to, to your point, yeah, he's invoking faith, I think, out of them, calling them to, to confession, uh, to, uh, to, to a statement of belief, to in some ways honestly publicly identify with him. And, and so, yeah, by, by the questions, again, it's, it's, all a, it's all an aspect of our relationship uh, with Christ. It's not something that's, that's done in secret, that's done hidden behind closed doors. Uh, but oftentimes these questions are asked in a public arena. It's not just a, uh, you know, a sidebar with Jesus, but people offering a public confession um, of, their, of their longing for healing, uh, a public confession that, that Christ has healed them, a public confession of faith. He, he's calling them into this, uh, really, to again, to this public relationship in many ways. So in, in between all of these stories, when Jesus was touched by the woman with bleeding, he was actually on his way to the home of a synagogue leader named Jairus, whose daughter was dying, and actually by the time he had healed the woman from bleeding, news came that the girl was dead. And they said, don't even bother Jesus anymore. In this case, Jesus turned to Jairus, the synagogue leader, who's just gotten the news that his daughter had died. And Jesus says, it's over in Mark 5.36, he said, don't be afraid, keep trusting. This time it wasn't a question. Yeah. It was a statement that he made. And he's speaking to the leader of the synagogue, the, the Jewish synagogue, who had come to Jesus because he was desperate. So again, it's, it's, out, it's not a question, it's a statement. He makes several statements in there. One of those, when he arrives, he says, the girl is not dead, but she's asleep. And everybody cracked up. <laughs> they just started making fun of him. They laughed at him. You know, as a, as a pastor... Uh, I suppose there's been some times when you've said something humorous in a sermon and people have given a chuckle, and there have been other times when people have laughed at you, right? <laughs> like, you are a fool. I, well, I'll put it this, I know it's happened with me multiple times, and they're quick to point out errors that I make or blunders or just dumb things that I say, which are numerous. Jesus 
presses on in the midst of death, in the midst of ridicule, of curiosity, of wondering, of doubt, all of that, he makes the statement, don't be afraid, keep trusting. How is that a word that is helpful for us in our modern world when we're faced with disappointment and disillusionment, when we're faced with sadness and guilt, when we're faced with really a a verdict from a doctor that doesn't sound very good, a diagnosis? Don't be afraid. Keep trusting. What's the word for us in that? I think first we see Jesus's comforting word uh, to Jairus and uh, as a means of encouragement to him as he's wrestling uh, with his with his daughter's uh, apparent death. And then the other the other side of it for us it, it is it's, it's a reminder that in the clouds uh, of life in the fog of life God sees things clearly. And so are we going to entrust ourselves to him or not? Are we going to fix our gaze upon the cross and see the undeniable love of God? Are we going to fix our gaze upon the empty tomb and see God's resurrected power? Or are we going to allow the circumstances of life to condition our hearts? And that that doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with the brokenness that we're faced with, that we don't grieve it. Um, you know, that, that brokenness, sickness, illness, disease, whatever it might be, it's a byproduct of the fall itself. And so we have a longing for life that is built into us because we've been created in the image of God. So it is good to, to grieve that brokenness. We see it with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus when he weeps. Um, and so this isn't a statement about, we don't, we don't grieve those things. We don't wrestle with the brokenness, uh, but in the midst of that, we do. We fix our gaze upon Christ, and we know. We know of his redeeming love. We know that he uh, vulnerably, he made himself vulnerable to the cross in order to redeem us. And so we fix our gaze upon the undeniable love of God. We, uh, we entrust ourselves to that love, um, knowing that in the end, he will rescue us to his kingdom. And I always reflect upon the Apostle Paul's words uh, near the end of 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote. Paul knows that death is certain. He knows that the, he's about to be killed uh, by the Romans. He, he knows that that is a reality. And I, I think it's in verse 16 of chapter 4, but he makes, the, he makes this point that, that God's going to rescue him. Hmm. Even though he knows that death is certain and he says he will rescue, you know, he will rescue me into his eternal kingdom. And so we have this uh, certain eternal reality that we fix our hearts in, uh, knowing of God's infinite, undeniable love toward us. So Jesus is displaying that kind of love over and over again through his words and his actions, through these healing stories in Matthew chapter 9 that are picked up in the other Gospels as well. And you'd think that everybody would would be on board with that. The reaction overall in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34 from the Pharisees, they make a statement, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So even though what you're saying is accurate, those who choose to look at Jesus in a different light don't see that, that kind of love displayed they just see him as we've seen as a crazy guy, as out of his mind, as madman, as a as a 
demon-possessed man himself, that he's working for Satan. All kinds of reactions were made to him. In fact, there's an interesting statement in, in all of this. Back to the story when Jesus healed the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. He, he said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. I know that power has gone out from me. And if you go, let, let's flip to Luke chapter 4 for a minute. Luke chapter 4, if you're there. And in verse 14, this word power arises again. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee, that's the northern region, in the power of the Spirit. We've seen that uh, rise up a couple of times when he said, power's gone out from me, or the power was on Jesus to heal people that day, or he's now in the power of the Spirit. And there was a, a power that was in him, was on him, through God's Spirit dwelling in him, and the actions and activities, the healings, the, the testimonies, the teachings of Jesus. And because of that, it says, I'm, I'm again in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues from, from village to village, town to town, city to city, and everyone praised him. So the people seemed to be on board with Jesus, while the religious scholars were against Jesus until the next verse. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he went home. He went home. You know, I know that uh, recently your, your hometown, New Orleans, was hit by a, a tornado, and that had to bring a lot of memories home for you as you've reflected on that and the, the community where you grew up, uh, very near there. And, and you know, have you, have you ever thought about going home and and doing ministry? I, I have, I, I have, I, I think about it quite a, a bit sometimes, um, more so in the past than I do uh, in the present. But but real quick, just circling back because I'm gonna yeah, I'm, I'll come do. back to that. But circling back to the the statement of the Pharisees, it's a reminder to us of our need for humility uh, before God. You know, the Pharisees wanted to believe something about Jesus, something that wasn't true. And so they rationalized their, their way around what they're seeing. I mean, Jesus is making the kingdom manifest on earth. He's inaugurating the kingdom through the healings. He's revealing the, the kingdom's presence uh, in and through him. And the Pharisees, uh, their only means to rationalize their way around it is to say, well, he drives, you know, he's, he's doing this, uh, he's doing this by the power of, of Satan himself. And so that e- even with the, the, the truth that's in front of them, they find a means to rationalize around it. And for us, you know, our need to be humble before God, if we truly are saying that we are going to follow Christ, then that again, as we, we talked about in a previous podcast, that, that leads to a posture of humility before Christ, where he is Lord over all and we submit ourselves to, to him. Because there's a, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of opportunity as we're reading through scriptures, we're seeking to walk with Christ. There are things that we're going to be confronted by that we don't necessarily uh, in the immediate agree with. We're not called to rationalize our way around those things or find excuses to uh, to, to believe or to, to really stand in opposition or to stand in rebellion 
uh, to Christ. And so as I see the Pharisees uh, posture, it's a reminder to myself of, of my need for humility uh, before Christ. Uh, back to uh, your question. Yeah, there, there have been times um, that I have thought about going home. In fact, b- before being called uh, to this church, there was a, the, a church that my wife and I were, were looking at, uh, a potential uh, pastor uh, there. And uh, God had God had other plans, but one of the things that that I wrestle with, it's like there's the mystique of what I left behind, and so there's a lot of sentimentality relative to my time growing up outside of New Orleans, and so in some ways there's a longing uh, to go back that exists within me. In some ways, it will always be uh, home, but I also realize that that I look at I look at my time there through the lens of in some ways again this sentimental love that going back, it, it, you're not going to necessarily recapture that. And if anything, um, you know, there, there might be aspects of of your past that are so locked in because of where you grew up. Uh, you know, you see with Jesus, you know, this is the son of a carpenter, you know, who is this guy? Uh, and so there, there's, there's always, again, that, that wrestling, uh, with just reality, knowing that if I did, if I did ever go back and maybe one day God will call me back to South Louisiana, but if I did go back, the idea that things are going to, that it's going to be some fairy tale existence. I also realize is yeah. a, a fool's errand. Well, before moving to Fishers, I spent the previous 18 years in the next town over from where I grew up. My, my first 18 years of life, I was <laughs> so, gone for, gone for a, a 20 years or so in between and then was called back to a church in the next town over. So I really, I was in the same county, uh, the same, the same people. And, uh, you know, I kind of maybe had some thoughts, boy, you know, all those relationships and connections I had from my first 18 or 20 years of life will, will, um, make a difference. It didn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. You know, I was still the same person to the people I bumped into, you know, and, and all of that. Well, you know, Jesus is maybe running into a little bit of that himself in that he shows up in his hometown. And I, there are two statements in here I want to I pick out because we won't have time to, to read through the entire thing. But he quotes, he quotes from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm in verse 20 of of Luke 4, sorry, Luke 4, verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. A clear, messianic, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ statement. And verse 22 is the interesting phrase. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So in the beginning, at the first statement of him saying, in essence, this prophecy of Isaiah was written about me. Everyone loved him. They thought he was something else. And I don't know if there was like a, to your point, a, a chattering that began to happen around the place. And they said, uh, wait a minute, uh, aren't his brothers here? And they name off four of his brothers. You'll find that in Matthew and Mark. And his sisters, he had 
plural sisters that were here from Joseph and Mary after he was born. So there were he came from a big old family, and they were all, they all still lived in town. They, they didn't travel around. They they apparently still lived in Nazareth. So everyone knew them. It was a small town, small small town like where, where I grew up. Small town. Everybody knew everybody. They knew him. So his family was there. His friends were were in town. It says all spoke well of him. And then he says some other things uh, that stir them up, basically saying, yeah, look, you folks, you want me to do for you what I did in other places, it wouldn't do you any good. And plus, God loves the outsiders anyway. That's my revised Mark <laughs> version of, the, of a statement there in verses 23 through 27. And then, but the phrase that struck me was this. Whereas in verse 22, all spoke well of him. In verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. When they heard his statement about them wanting all these wonderful miracles and God loves the outsiders as much as he loves you. So they went from all speaking well of him to all being furious with him to the point where they tried to kill him shove him off the cliff. And, and I, I'm just wondering, like, how did they get from all spoke well to all were furious and they tried to shove him off the cliff? We have to remember that in the congregation that day were four brothers, at least two sisters, plural, probably his mom. Are they shoving him off the cliff too? I mean, like, yeah. what is going? They weren't defending him apparently, or, or, or tackling the crowd. Like, what, what made the shift so dramatic from all spoke well to all were furious, murderous? They, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to cast aspersion on on Mary and his family here. Um, you know, I mean, who, who, I, whether they were participating or not. But, you know, the hometown crowd wants the hometown discount, right? And uh, so if you ever seen anybody furious when they don't, uh, you know, I used to, I worked at a, I, I've shared this before, but worked at a pizza restaurant. And uh, when somebody would come in with a coupon, even an expired coupon, uh, you know, for a dollar off their pizza. Their you know twelve dollar pizza, dollar off their pizza, and if the coupon was expired, I could not take their coupon. And yet there was an expectation, especially if it was a repeat customer. There's this expectation that I was just going to take their coupon, and not taking their coupon, I got read the riot act. It, the thing could be like six months old, and I still got read the riot act. And here's Jesus in his hometown, and they're all anticipating like he he's going to make this place you know great. We're going to experience all sorts of like awesome healings. Uh, this will probably improve our standing. Uh, no longer are we going to be this like small backwater town. We got Jesus. He's one of ours. And, uh, and he's going to, you know, he's going to shine the light on us. And, and then when he's, he's not engaging in that because they want him in some ways for, I think, selfish means and selfish reasons. And he says, no, they lose their mind. Do they get it back? We don't know, I guess. I, I, it's a crazy, I mean, it's, it's a crazy scene to me. It's nuts. <laughs> because when I, you know, when I back to, for 18 years to minister to my community, 
there was nobody trying to kill me. Well, at least as far as I know that <laughs> it, it, what a crazy picture of it, at the very least he had to know these people. They had to be neighbors oh, yeah. and it was yeah. a small community because they knew him. They knew his dad. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. But they wanted to, to do away with him. And, and, and I look at this previous thing we just talked about where the Pharisees had said, oh, he's doing this, you know, he's working for Satan. And now you got just hometown, you know, Bill and Henry and Wanda and Myrtle, they're, they're like trying to shove him off the cliff. And they're not Pharisees. They're, they're not anything like the religious elite who have something big to lose in this. And maybe that's what they wanted. I don't know, the hometown discount. Or they wanted him to be a hometown hero or, or yeah. something. Everybody wants to create, you know, the Pharisees wanted the Messiah in their own image it related to what they believed the Messiah was going to be. Jesus didn't fit that image, and so they they wanted to do away with them. Is uh, that the deal that we just want so often faith to be about us? What can I get out of it? I mean, the, the, the human heart, um, and again, I know I said this previously, it, it's, an, it's an idol-making factory. And so the, our disposition is going to be to create a God, to create a Messiah in our own image. And so how often do we encounter folks, and I, I'm sure that I've been guilty of this uh, in my own uh, faith journey with Christ, but how often do folks pick and choose what they want to hear from Scripture? And so they just align Jesus with their own heart, with their own disposition, uh, Jesus is never confronting them on anything. He just basically advocates everything they already and affirms everything they already believe. And it, it's an easy spot to fall into. Uh, inevitably, I know that in the past I have fallen in uh, to that, uh, to the point where I, I mean, if there's one thing that I want to guard my heart against, it's falling into that trap. I mean, when I read scripture, it is Holy Spirit illuminate my heart uh, to the brokenness that exists, um, that my heart, that my life is being measured against God's self-revelation uh, so that I'm not picking and choosing that which I just find agreement with and, uh, and living into that and then calling that picture that I've constructed, well, there's Jesus. Yeah, wasn't it Thomas Jefferson who famously yeah. cut out ver- portions uh, large portions of the gospels that he just said uh, i'm not going to believe in this healing or those kind of things and and others st- still do that they all of, i think the wise counsel and what you just said was to take all of scripture and really let it permeate us the fullness of the father son and holy spirit not pick and choose cherry pick the pieces we yeah. want and parts that seem right to us but look at all of that and, and realize that in our own brokenness, our sinfulness, our idolatry, that we too are those who've shoved Jesus off the cliff. We, we are the ones who have nailed him to the cross mm-hmm. by our own sin yep. and our own grief. Well, this, yep. is, this has been good today. It's, it's a, an interesting insight into that. Uh, um, I'm not encouraging you to go home right away because I really like working with you. So we, uh, we'll just call this New Orleans North up here in Indianapolis area. 
And, That's fair. And That's keep, fair. Keep you here. Well, folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app, and click on the Life of Jesus link. That will take you to more elements in this year-long study of the life of Jesus, such as our daily gospel readings with devotions and poems, and the weekly sermons, group studies, and other episodes. Until then, God bless you, and we will see you next time.